friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different women come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of Acts and the work of Jesus through his church and in his kingdom. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Vanessa and me in conversation today are Allie Westner and Ellen Hoover. Welcome, ladies. Glad to be here. I curled my hair for it. <laughs> Thanks for having us. And it does look pretty, Allie. <laughs> Allie and Ellen are longtime friends. They're fantastically talented homeschool moms, mm-hmm. and they're two of my favorite people to go to for book recommendations. <laughs> and today, Ellen's husband went with my husband to get firewood for our solo stove. They're our neighbors, so that was a fun little event. Ladies, y'all are going to introduce yourselves now, and when you introduce yourself, you're also going to ask answer our first things first question that we do at the beginning of every podcast, and that question is, what was your first pet's name, and what did you especially love about him or her? Allie, start us off. Hey, I'm Allie Westner. I'm very excited to be here today. I do indeed homeschool my four children with my incredibly patient and kind husband, Mike. Mm. He actually was home today and helped with math. Hallelujah, pass the bacon. (laughs) Anson, Julia, Eleanor, and Caroline. I will let them know that you said I was fantastically talented. I'll play that on repeat and loud. (laughs) I do not love long walks on the beach. I like to have a long sit on the beach with a long book. So that would be my idea of a good time. And I really enjoy, I've enjoyed embroidering lately. So those are some things that I like to do when I'm not fantastically talentingly homeschooling. (laughs) My first pet, this made me a little sad because every time I think of Chester Wessner, I get sad. Chester Wessner was my first dog. Mike and I were newlyweds, well nigh 22 years ago. He was the sweetest, cutest miniature dachshund, but we made a grave error, and that was that we did not train him or his brother, Ray, when we got Ray Westner, who we named after Mike's father. (laughs) Um, I know, that's very kind and thoughtful to name a dog after your father-in-law, but we didn't train them. And so when we were expecting Julia, we had to rehome them. And I still miss Chester. I actually have a needle point that Mike's aunt made for us. It's in my dining room and it just says Chester underneath it. So... (laughs) There's a lot of things that make me smile about that story. First, that Chester Westner rhymes, and then that you can yell at your father-in-law when you feel like it. (laughs) Yes. So anyway, old Chester was my very first, and he was just so sweet and would cuddle with me. Oh, Chester. Chester Westner. Oh, Chester Westner. (laughs) You don't hear the dog's last name often like that. If it rhymes. Exactly. Exactly. Hilarious. Uh, Beat I'm, that, Ellen. Okay. <laughs> I'll try. I'm Ellen Hoover. I am married to Adam, and we have four kids, Merritt, Graham, Miles, and Owen, and they're 7 to 14. And I do still homeschool the boys, but Merritt is in school this year, so that's been a fun adventure. Um, they keep me busy, but I do enjoy some things. I like to be outside. I like to run and hike, and I like to read, and I like to sing, and I like to grow plants. I think that's all for now. Um, and we have uh, we have a lot of pets. I don't really know how many. We have. What? They're always just coming and going, and that's also <laughs> the kind of house that I grew up in. And so my mom and I, neither one of us knows what my first pet was. So we think it might have been this parakeet named Feathers. Of course, his name is Feathers. And I think I may have been six or seven, but the problem was that we had cats, so we had to hang his cage from the ceiling, and I couldn't reach it. And... He, maybe like a week after we got feathers, we found him dead in the cage. And my mom said, Ellen, have you been feeding him? 
And I was, I was like, what? How could I forget something so basic like feeding the bird? Oh, so kind of traumatic. I know. I starved him. And, and, and I don't think I loved him. I don't think I knew enough. I don't think I had enough time to love him. <laughs> so sorry. But I, I do think I've learned and I'm a little bit better at caring for living animals now and humans. <laughs> So the first pet that was actually mine, I grew up in a family that my dad always had dogs, but I didn't consider those mine. So, but our first pet was a, a chocolate lab named Jamaican Java because he was just <laughs> beautiful. He, was like, he looked like a strong cup of coffee as Aww. far as his color. He was gorgeous. And I, my love for him was just that it was my husband's first pet and he had always wanted a dog. And so that was, he was just a sweetie. He was a, he was a sweet dog. Um, and yeah, sadly, someone stole Java. So oh, that was really, stole him? yeah, that was really sad. How long had you had him before he got stolen? Um, maybe probably less than two years. Yeah, but he was gorgeous. Our stories had sad endings. <laughs> <laughs> Don't play this one for your kids, people. <laughs> if you're looking for creative pet names, though, You've this is a good right one. Yeah, Jamaican Java. Although I'm That's about adorable. to disappoint you. <laughs> uh, my first and only pet growing up was a, a mutt of a dog that was a very pretty mutt of a dog. And he had a curly, almost like a husky tail. Mm. And he had some German Shepherd features, but he wasn't that big. And so we called him Sheppy. <laughs> <laughs> Shepherd, Sheppy. Shep for short. <laughs> and what I loved about him was that no matter what was going on, particularly in my adolescent life, when I came home from school or for where, from wherever, that dog wanted to be with me. He wanted to sit with me. He was happy to see me. He loved me. So even in the midst of all of sort of the turmoil of life and growing up and various things like that, you could always count on the fact, I could always count on the fact that my dog loved me, mm-hmm. that he was glad to see me. And I do think that's one of the things that's so great about dogs. You know, in a, a faithful, loving pet, it can be a small but valuable picture of what God tells us his love is like. And you simply Mm. put, he's always eager to be with us. And in him, with him, we find joy. Mm. Last week, we talked with Ann and Mallory about the glorious promise of God to work out his loving, redemptive plan all throughout history and into our individual lives. And we took this truth from Stephen, a man filled with the Holy Spirit and martyred for his commitment to the good news of Jesus. And Stephen's martyrdom, we see in Acts, sparked an intense persecution against Mm -hmm. the church in Jerusalem. It resulted in the scattering of believers throughout Judea and Samaria. And it reminds me of Jesus' words to his disciples at the time of his ascension, quoted by Luke at the beginning of Acts, where he says, Jesus says, but you will receive power Mm -hmm. when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You know, I very much doubt that the disciples or other early believers could have predicted that the movement out of Jerusalem would come through intense persecution, but such was their faith through the power of the Holy Spirit in the promises of Jesus, who himself had been persecuted, killed, and then raised to life, that as they were scattered, They went around witnessing to the good news, the joy of Jesus, Mm -hmm. which is just Mm -hmm. so stand out to me in the book of Acts. This week, we're taking our talking points, particularly from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through Acts chapter 9, verse 31. And as we've always strongly encouraged, if you have not read the passage, hit pause, 
read it now because you'll get so much more out of our conversation if you know the passage that we're talking from. And in this passage, we're going to read about, or we've read about, you will read about, the vastly different efforts of two men. First, man, you have Philip. And Philip's instructed by the angel of the Lord to go to a road leading to a desert place to witness to an Ethiopian eunuch returning home from Jerusalem, where he had gone to worship with the book of Isaiah on his lap Mm -hmm. and questions in his mind and heart. Explaining, Philip goes up to this Ethiopian and gets to explain who Jesus is, starting with the scripture that the Ethiopian is reading. He believed, he was baptized, and then he went on his way home to what then would have been considered the outer parts of the world as a witness to Jesus himself. But right alongside of that is a second man whose name is Saul, consumed with murderous intent of his own making and traveling to a different road, right, to Damascus, where he plans to find and bind believers in Jesus in order to bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners and possibly martyrs. It's such a contrast in this passage, yet we're going to learn that both men are tools in the hands of a redemptive God. Mm -hmm. Vanessa, what stuck out to you about that juxtaposition of the advancement and joy of the gospel and the intense persecution against the church at the same time? It's such powerful imagery is um, what I'm thinking as you're talking about that. Um, I'm reminded of Tertullian, the, the church father, who says, I think he encapsulates this, and he has to be talking about Acts, and he has to be talking about um, just the early church and the type of persecution um, that was just rampant um, in the early church, but also the success of the church in that he talks about the blood of the martyrs is the seed for the church. And that statement, I think, really aptly describes what's happening in Acts. Um, God's sovereignty is clearly at work. We see the divine action, even in the the passage you're talking about, because uh, Philip is being sent to Jerusalem to preach the gospel by by an angel of the Lord. Um, And so this Ethiopian eunuch takes the gospel back home because Philip was sent there. And and so he is baptized and he leaves rejoicing. Um, The divine action of Saul being blinded and the Lord speaking to Ananias through a vision and giving instruction to lay hands on Saul and to restore his sight. Then Saul seeing Ananias in a vision. I mean, you just see the Lord's divine hand and his plan all over this. And and for uh, Ananias to arrive and lay hands on Saul, um, which had to be scary, Mm -hmm. but for him to do that. And then the Lord clearly states his intentions for the gospel and um, it, for its going forth, where he says in Acts 9.15 um, of Ananias concerning Saul, he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, as you were saying, mm-hmm. Amber, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Saul would preach a while, get chased to the next town and get his life threatened. And, uh, and then he would go on preaching the gospel. So persecution inevitably scattered the saints. And as the saints scattered, so did the gospel. Mm-hmm. And it's just, unla- it's just not how we would plan it. But it's as Tertullian said, you know, the martyrdom of the saints was the seed for the church. Mm-hmm. And the gospel spread. And it's one thing to sit here and nod our heads at this table in relative comfort and ease. You know, I was reading the article, an article about um, Ukraine this morning and a church pastor who was there and just some of the things that he was sharing and the fact that he's living out in some ways that we're not yet what it's like to be surrounded on all sides by an enemy that keeps pressing in. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking as I was reading that how when I say that 
Saul was a tool in the Lord's hand or mm-hmm. Philip was a tool in the Lord's hand. Sometimes you could think tool, the guy's just sort of up here maneuvering chess pieces. You go here, you go here, you go here. And it's all for my good, but very removed. And yet how that place where Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting mm-hmm. me? That the Lord's sovereign plan has always included suffering and he doesn't exempt himself from that suffering, that he very much includes himself in that suffering with us. Yeah, and how the suffering is just a part of that plan. I mean, yeah. uh, the thing that he says about uh, Saul as being an instrument is I'll, I'll tell him how much he has to suffer in my name mm-hmm. and for my name. Mm-hmm. And so being a tool doesn't preclude the suffering. It, in fact, it often invites it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in it, there is this joy. Absolutely. That's the other thing. The joy is advancing. The suffering is there, but the joy mm-hmm. is advancing through that. And we saw that with the Ethiopian eunuch. He went on his way rejoicing. I like the way that George Robertson defines joy when he says joy is the profound assurance in the midst of a broken world that you are right with God. Mm. Such joy, he says, is not momentary giddiness, but real deep abiding joy that endures through the disappointments of life. So Allie and Ellen, what are some of the ways that God gives you that kind of joy? And what do you do when you find it to be lacking? Well, in considering this, I feel like I could answer it in a few different ways. But then when you hear the definition that George gives, you're like, okay, well, I'm, but I'm going to give you both. So first I was thinking of how I experience joy or what I'm doing when I'm experiencing joy. It could be something like washing the dishes, the dishes to old country music or clean sheets. But that sounds like a modern version of these are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> but those are some of the ways that he gives me joy. Like mm. the thing where I just am just, I don't know, glad, I don't, um, thankful mm. that he enables me to joy, enjoy those, my favorite things. Or when I'm in the middle of teaching, I teach first grade here, and I know that Jesus himself is using me to share something good, true, and beautiful. Mm-hmm. There's so much joy there, like, oh my goodness, I get to be a part of this. This is so exciting. Or when I show up at the right time and do just the bare minimum, and I feel like I got to be a part of something that's bigger than myself, that there's joy there. But... Alas, I cannot always enjoy a few of my favorite things or do those big things because there's the mundane. Like we live in the, the regular. I'm home. Most days I'm driving people, including myself, to do things that we don't typically want to do. And in those times, I usually turn to song. Now, this might not be the old country music, although George Strait is always a good place to turn for this girl. <laughs> but George used to call them the strong songs. That those songs that remind my soul to praise the Lord, the songs that remind me that the kingdom is not in trouble now, nor has it ever been in trouble, and that I am being cared for by the King of Kings, Mm. that He knows me, He loves me, He sees me, He cares for me. And when I hear from the saints of old that buried husbands, wives, children, and you hear them say, it is well... And the song that we sang this past Sunday night, which, by the way, come to church on Sunday night if you need some joy, says, May it be, come what may, that I rest all my days Mm -hmm. in the goodness of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the Psalms is another place, especially the ones that I've recorded with my little bitty people. And to hear their voices singing these truths to me is always so sweet. And then lastly, George brings the sacraments to our attention, and he calls them a moving demonstration of God's eagerness for our joy. And we just celebrated 
um, the Lord's Supper this past Sunday night, my favorite way. I love family supper. Like just watching our church walk down the aisles as families. I even watched someone come. He must have been sitting with someone else. And when his family went up to the front, he kind of sprinted up to be there. That I almost cry every time just watching that and thinking, it is, I cry now. It is so kind and beautiful that we are invited to the Lord's table, that that is, that is joy. He mm. gives me that. So those mm. are a few, a few ways that I experience, and where do I go? I love that, Allie. You are joyful. Oh, thank you. Um, so I think joy is one of the most precious gifts that God gives us. It's unrelated to our circumstances, um, but it's deeper, more abiding, rooted in the knowledge that he loves us, that we can't be snatched from his Mm -hmm. hand. And I think the spirit has to seal that to our hearts. It's a gift. Mm. For me, this joy is renewed and refreshed when I take time or make space to reflect on the gospel um, and of God's love for me. Um, That might be in my quiet time, might be in snatches throughout the day. It definitely happens in worship on Sundays uh, or when I'm walking alongside people I know are suffering and yet are kept by the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I feel lacking in joy, I know it's a sign that I've just lost perspective. I've forgotten who I am in Christ. It happens all the time. I'm so forgetful. Sometimes it's because of my own sin, maybe self-pity that I need to repent of. Other times it's just the mundane disappointments, irritations, bickering kids, messy house, clogged toilet, things not going according to plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I need to realize that I've made those things too important um, if they're stealing my joy. Other times I'm anxious about the future and I have to sift my heart and ask myself, and if this worst case scenario happens, will I still be kept by the Lord Um, to regain perspective? And then other times life is devastating. Life is hard and there's true suffering. And I think in those cases, um, God promises to be near and he restores our joy in time. But I did love what George said at the end of the notes. He says, perhaps you have lost your joy because you have returned to some persistent sin. It may be infidelity or unbelieving melancholy or bitterness or anger. You've lost your joy because you have gone back to trying to make things happen on your own. You are disappointed with God, so you are going to pout until he gives you what you want. But he will never do it. He loves you too much. Your pouting only robs you of joy. How do you come back to him? The same way you first came. Come to the waters of salvation. Drink in his joy at no cost. Mm-hmm. So good. So good. It's so good. Um, it really resonates with me, Ellen, the loss of perspective and forgetfulness. And you're right. And so to have rhythms built in to, to help us mm-hmm. remember when we're being forgetful and, and lose perspective. So I particularly like the delineation between joy and, and um, jubilance because um, joy isn't that. And um, I think I can be more uh, most acutely aware of joy in sorrow, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, when I consider that Jesus was a man full of sorrows, that was how he was described in Scripture, acquainted with grief. Yet he embodied, as being full of the Spirit and being the Spirit, um, he embodied all the fullness of joy um, as, a, as given in the Spirit. And so that didn't make him jubilant all the time. Um, but it did make him full of joy. And so I think in my sorrow to recognize um, that joy is that quiet confidence that when things are swirling about, 
that it really is well. It's that resolve that, um, you know, even though it, it doesn't look good right now, it's well. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think I'm learning qu- quickly, more qu- I'm learning to be quicker about running back to Christ um, and receiving the invitation, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But in that rest also he gives us, he gives us joy. He gives us that mm-hmm. fullness of joy of being in his presence. And so I'm learning to do that more quickly and to reclaim the joy. Mm-hmm. May I add one more thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the creeds. I love the catechism. That's mm-hmm. another place. And this one just reminded me of both Ellen and Vanessa, what you just said. The Heidelberg, I have, I've not committed this one to memory, but the very first question, what is your only comfort in life mm-hmm. and death? Yes. That I am not my own, mm-hmm. but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way, I love this line, that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together mm-hmm. for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That to me, like joy that that is true. Yes. Mm-hmm. I just, yes. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Resting in the confidence of that truth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how all three of you are speaking in your own ways of the truth that the kingdom has never been in danger <clears throat> and will never be in danger, mm-hmm. that the Lord keeps me no matter what, mm-hmm. that when we come to him, he provides for us what we can't provide for ourselves and in the suffering and in the hardship, he's in it with us. Mm-hmm. And all of the different ways that we're reminded of that is really sweet to hear those from all of three of you. And I just think those believers in our passage for today, they had to have known those same truths and shared them with one another and experienced them in worship. And that's what gave them that joy and that confidence in the midst of the persecution that was going on. And so we see the powerful ways the Lord assures to us that he is on the throne, that he is ruling and reigning. And and one of the ways we see it here is through his interaction with Saul. You know, Saul's on the road to Damascus. His intent is to go in to claim, to bind believers and to bring them out and to commit them um, to prison. And instead, he encounters the living God who reveals (laughs) himself, who exposes the depth of sin in Saul, who blinds him so that Saul, instead of being going into Damascus and leading people out, he's led by the hand in. And he sits in darkness for three days until the man Ananias is told by the Lord, I want you to go to Saul. He's been told that you're going to come, that you're going to restore his sight. And I just think as y'all are listening or reading that account and you think, what would have been like to be Saul? What would have been like to be Ananias? What are the things that come to y'all's minds? I confess, this is a crazy, this is a crazy story. It's so crazy. (laughs) And I've always really felt sorry for Ananias. But <laughs> thinking through it a little more, um, he was lucky. No, he, God providentially gave him this opportunity. Um, I think I would have been terrified and confused. I would have definitely questioned God like Ananias did. Are you sure this man, this murderer? Um, I probably would have tried to get Adam to do it for me. <laughs> and he probably would have. Um, and I wonder if I would have been able to see Saul as a man made in God's image instead of seeing him as 
all this wicked deeds that he had done. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and then, but, but looking back, I'm sure Ananias was so grateful to be able to be part of that story. Just a little part at the beginning of Saul's coming to faith, God used Saul to impact so many and he got to be included in that story. So, Um, and then Saul, I just think sitting in the dark for three days must have just been grieving and feeling the weight of all his actions, all the ways he'd hurt and injured and um, been wrong. He was so zealous and certain, and yet he was on the wrong side of the story, and now he realizes it, and just feeling the weight of that. Um, And then I think I would be humbled for someone like Ananias to come and encourage me. This man, I probably injured his family. Maybe I've killed his friends, um, and yet he's coming to pray for me. That would be so humbling. And then would be filled with love for Jesus who chose to redeem me when he could have taken me out. He didn't have to use me in his kingdom. Um, And then I think Saul, he suffered so much persecution and in the course of his ministry, would he look back at that moment and be like, but but God redeemed me when I was against him and when I least deserved Mm -hmm. it. Um, And which is, that's all of our stories, right? Mm -hmm. We're not, maybe not as dramatically as Saul, but that's our story. He redeemed us when we didn't deserve it. So, You're so thoughtful. I always love getting to be in <laughs> conversations with Ellen. So I feel like I personally need a disclaimer because I feel like I wonder through the Bible. Like I just let my imagination loose and I just kind of enjoy it. I think that's why I like the first graders because we're just like, what do you think? So that's what's happening here. So when I consider Saul first, it's hard to consider what on earth would have been going through his mind when Jesus, who he'd been pursuing so hard, literally stops him in his tracks. And Saul doesn't necessarily seem rattled. He says, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. But then I want some more detail in the scripture. Like Jesus said triumphantly or Paul trembled. Like I want more there. So I'm like, I I want to know what he was really feeling. I think my response would have been like, wait, don't shoot. There's been a terrible misunderstanding. (laughs) Like just, uh, but that's probably also my, I'm not really at fault. Like, but that that's not how Saul responds at all. Like there is a humility here. And I think about the same thing, those three days when he was blind, I thought, okay, I wonder if that made the believers feel safer. Like, y'all don't worry. He can't even see you. Like, you know, like that, that he, he can't hurt you right now because he can't see you. But then was he also, like you said, Ellen, like, was it somewhat of a spiritual timeout where he had to just sit and consider that he had, what he had done? And also to think about everything he knew all clicking in like Tetris, you know, like how it's all just falling into place that everything that he, cause we know he was a learned man, very educated. And so the short answer is that I think if I were Saul, I would be petrified but then I love that you added humbled, you know, that, that Jesus knew what he had been up to. Mm-hmm. I think I probably have a little bit, I can identify a little bit more with Ananias being asked to do something that was really dangerous. And so as a new believer, I became a Christian when I was 19. So a new believer, I probably would have been like, I'm on it. I am so <laughs> glad you asked. I wondered when you were going to do something about that clown. And I would have been so excited to have been in danger and on the front lines. But then you fast forward a little bit, and I've seen some things, and I'm ashamed to say that maybe I wouldn't have been as quick to obey. 
that I would probably like Ananias remind God that there were other people, like you said, Ellen, send Adam, like some other people are far more equipped for this task. I just put dinner in the oven. I should not waste it. It's probably organic. <laughs> not really, but I'm not going to waste it. And that he'd been breathing murderous threats. But I love that God had already given Ananias all this information. And Ananias still responds with, well, I'm not sure if you knew this. That's not actually in the text. But he says, well, um, he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls on on your name. And I love that because I do that to the Lord. Like, I don't know if you are paying attention, but this guy is kind of dangerous. (laughs) And I'm not quite sure it's safe. And God says... Go, which is, I was doing English this morning with one of my children. That's an imperative that you typically use after you've already asked someone to do something one time. (laughs) He says, go. And that's where he says that he's going to see how much he must suffer. And so I, but I, I loved Ananias's response to Saul. He called him brother Saul. Like what it that he had just, but because God had assured him, he had this assurance. He could, he says, brother Saul. But then I love this when he said, um, the Lord Jesus. Like I almost like in case you weren't quite sure who he was or what he's been doing. And he also I felt like was letting him know I'm on that side too. Like this mm-hmm. is where we are right now. So I really loved the interaction. I think I would be a bit like Ananias, hesitant but willing at the mm-hmm. same time, trusting my father would. Mm-hmm. would see me through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of components in this account that causes us to think about what the Lord's redemptive work is like in our lives and how he moves in converting and restoring our hearts. And you see confrontation, you see revelation. I mean, the Lord reveals himself and he does so in such a way that it strikes Saul with fear as it should. Um, and yet he is considering all things gentle with Saul. Um, Saul sits in that darkness. It says he does, he fasts, he does not eat. Uh, There's a mourning, a repentance, I'm sure a lot of thought. And then there's the use of Ananias in a way that Ananias thought was very unusual, dangerous, may not work, may backfire, all those things. You think, and how do we feel in in conversion stories of other people? What's the Lord going to do? How's he going to use us? Do we think it's possible? Do we think it's impossible? Do we want to do it? Do we think that person deserves it? Do we think we deserve it? You know, all those questions come up and it causes us to think, what do we think just in general as we relate to other people and we see that the Lord is still about this work of conversion, of bringing souls to him in so many, multiple ways, but there's components that we see here in all of those conversions. How would that make you all think about conversions that you've either your own or that you've experienced in life with others or that you're still longing to see take place in someone's lives? What'd y'all think about that? Okay. So what have I learned about the ways God brings about unlikely conversions? They are only unlikely to me mm-hmm. that to him, to God, it's never a surprise that he knew where the Ethiopian would be and provided Philip at the right time. And Amber, you mentioned this at the beginning, but who doesn't love that meanwhile between the Ethiopian and Saul? That at the same time, God is doing this work. So he's always at work. And that from the very beginning, Saul was chosen to be his instrument. So it's only unlikely 
to us that no one is too far out of his reach. I think of the international link ministry that we have here and of the men and women who come from places far and wide where Christ is not known and they come here to study and they're brought here to Augusta and many of them meet Jesus here, and then they even want to go back to their country, even though that their lives will be threatened because of the good news. That seems unlikely to me, Mm. that someone from a country where admitting Christ is punishable by death, that they would ever even hear his name, and yet God has done that. Here we are. And we stand amazed, but God has been about the business of the unlikely or the all-out crazy rescue since the garden. And the other ridiculously humbling aspect of all of this is that he doesn't need my help, but that he allows me to help, just like I allow my kids to help me in the kitchen. But we all know it's easier, faster, and neater if you do it alone, and yet he invites us to this. I think that's unlikely, too, that he would use us in this. (laughs) I called it bring your Yahoo to work day, like God just lets us come along him. But that he's holding all things together, and he invites us to watch his outrageous love reach far and wide. Like he says, hey, watch this. And he demonstrates his power and his might. And I'm slack-jawed because I didn't see it coming. And there it is. And he's just so great. Mm. And so is there anyone so unlikely that I would say, in my, yes, I do think that there are unlikely people. Unfortunately, there are some in my own family that I just think, I don't know. I just don't know. But that's not true. Um, that... It's, it's never unlikely. Won't he move heaven and earth to find the one? I just praise his holy name. God does what he wants, and um, mm-hmm. he brings people to himself in so many ways. Um, I love how every Christian's story is unique. I think about my own life and how my mom was a huge instrument, just sharing the gospel with me from the very earliest days, um, how God gave me the gift of faith, and he's kept me all these years. And then I think of people like Rosaria Butterfield. Maybe you've read her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Um, just her story of coming to faith. Very, She was very hostile to the gospel. She was an academic in New York and had no interest in Christianity except for to attack it. Um, and she wrote this scathing article. I think it was maybe about promise keepers or something like that. And she got a variety of responses, love and hate. And then there was this one letter that was neither. (laughs) It was just questions, and they were respectful, and it was questions about how do you know that's true, and just um, so thoughtful and kind. And even though she wasn't searching, God used those questions to start a whole process to to bring her, and he he chose to do that. Um, Eventually, she befriended this man who'd written the letter. He was a pastor, and he patiently walked her through the gospel and over time she did become a Christian and I love her story because um, it reminds me that no matter when my words may be lacking God's plan will not be thwarted Mm -hmm. Um, he'll bring people as he desires to and also that it's okay to speak up it comforts me that it's okay to speak up especially and it's okay to speak with gentle words you don't have to forcefully convince somebody the spirit convinces people that's his job um we just have to be ready and um, faithful in the opportunities God gives us. It's a great example. Mm-hmm. Very well said. And you know, from this passage, we can wonder and marvel and glory in the sovereignty of God 
to exert his redemptive will over the entire world and every individual. And that is something to wonder and glory at. And then we should also glory uh, in the remembrance that it's a redemptive plan, that it's a redemptive will. So it's a plan to give every type of person, every type of sinner, the joy that we talked about of a profound assurance in the midst of a broken world that they are right with God through the work of his son, Jesus. So we see in Acts that it's Jesus is not, he didn't only die to give us this assurance, he lives to bring it in accordance with God's unstoppable plan to the entire world. Mm. Allie and Ellen, thank you guys so much for being here today. I've loved hearing your thoughtful insights. It's been good to have you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. This has felt like a treat. Feels like holy <laughs> ground getting treat. to talk about yeah. these things with y'all. Listeners, if you want to see the pretty faces of our guests today, check out our Women's Bible Study Facebook page at Women's Bible Study FPCA or find us on Instagram at First Pres Augusta Women. We'd love for you to join us again next week. Let us join you while you bake Valentine's cookies or maybe make your favorite stew. Kay Harris and Tori Acock will be sitting with us to talk about the utterly inclusive nature of the gospel. Hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain.